Since we've been going through Revelation, we've talked a fair bit about God's judgment lately. And sometimes this may encourage you, other times it may trouble you, or both. But if you're like me, more often than not, we just don't know how to react, how to respond. You may see things like, I don't know how to feel about God's wrath or judgment. However, I think we can know how we should feel, or at least how we will, if we follow Jesus, how we will feel about this one day. I suggest to you today that God's people will react with gratitude, relief, awe, and even praise. You might sense a reflex right now to say, well, don't tell me how to feel. But I'm not telling you how to feel now as much as how you will feel one day. Because I think Revelation tells us about that day. And I think that we can hear prophetic echoes of what we will say then. Which I believe can help us come to grips with God's wrath even today. So let's turn together to Revelation 15. Revelation 15, towards the very end of your Bible. Now, throughout Revelation, I've taken the approach that this book isn't just about the end times, that, but rather that in highly symbolic language, Revelation speaks to past, present, and future. We're given a series of different visions of John's. Then I saw, then I saw, then I saw this. But these are, are not necessarily sequential events like we're watching a movie. It's more like we're walking through an art gallery of paint, and we see paintings that, to, that show the same story from different angles or perspectives or emphases or styles. That said, I believe that what we'll see in chapters 15 and 16 today, while speaking to us in the past and present, does primarily look ahead to future events, to the end of time. Because the text here clearly says that God's wrath is coming to an end here. This is the culmination and completion of God's judgment and wrath on the earth. Look how chapter 15 begins. It says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So again, John sees a sign in heaven, which means it's something that points beyond itself to another greater reality. It's a symbol. But this is the first time that he calls a sign great and amazing or marvelous. Perhaps because it's a, a sign that's directly related to the Lord this time. What is the sign? Well, much like with the seals and trumpets back earlier in Revelation, it's seven angels with seven plagues. And with them, it says the wrath of God is finished or brought to completion. Yet we wonder, like we have more than once in Revelation, how is wrath great and amazing? How is that possible? Well, Grant Osborne comments, For us, the idea of judgment is at best a somber and sorrowful thought, 
But the perspective of Revelation is quite different. In the visionary world of this book, it signifies the justice of God and the vindication of the saints. Those are good things. Or think of it another way. Do you pray the Lord's Prayer? Praying for his name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come, his will to be done. Those prayers cannot be fully answered until God's wrath abolishes evil. They can't. Still, our passage today begins and ends. It's bookended by God's wrath. And that's tragic. But before we go any further, we should define what we mean by God's wrath first. Because when we picture wrath, we picture someone out of control with rage and anger. We picture voices yelling, fighting, things breaking, people getting hurt, a hulk smashing, etc. But that's not God's wrath at all. Leon Morris defines it this way, that as God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil, a burning zeal for the right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil, arising out of God's very nature. Jonathan Dodson adds, God's wrath isn't a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer eating the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. People say things like, I hate cancer all the time. We try to kill cancerous cells with radiation or chemo, and no one bats an eye at that, and rightfully so. This is God's equivalent to that opposition, but on a cosmic level. He wants the cancer eradicated. Now, before... We see God's final doses of wrath being poured out here. Chapter 15 prepares us for it. Look what John sees next in verse 2. It says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now we saw a sea of glass in heaven back in chapter 4. And like there, the imagery of a glass sea does three things. It reflects or refracts the magnificent glory of God. It separates God from his creation. And in contrast to the chaotic, scary seas of earth, the sea in heaven is tamed and still. But here, something is added to the image. The glass seems shot through with fire. Fire is symbolic for judgment, of course, so this is fitting. Heaven is reflecting what's going on with God here. And there, beside the sea, are God's people. It says, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, Don't worry if you think harp music is boring. I'm sure harps of God will not be. But this is encouraging. Like back in chapter 13, the beast was conquering and killing God's people. But now we see even as they were conquered, they conquered the beast. 
Now, you may come to a different conclusion than I do here, but since I believe the beast can symbolize all God's people's enemies and the mark of the beast symbolizes unbelief, I believe all believers, in fact, conquer the beast and are thus included in this event, in this scene. So if you follow Jesus, I believe you're going to be part of this event right here. But the main focus of this passage isn't on who these people are. It's on what they sing. Look at verse 3. It says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now here we see a surprising, perhaps a bit jarring truth. Much like last week, actually that the great completion of God's wrath inspires worship. God's completion of his wrath actually inspires worship from his people. Basically, everything God ever does can inspire worship, right? But, but wrath has to be the least expected thing to do so, right? <laughs> And God's, yet it does here. And as God's wrath is wrapped up, God's people can't help but sing, praise him. Now, notice a, a few things about the song they sing. First, it's called the Song of Moses. Now, the greatest event associated with Moses has to be the exodus through the Red Sea. Right? You know what the Israelites did on the other side of the sea? They sang and worshiped. So do you think it's any coincidence that in Revelation 15, standing next to a stilled sea, that it's Moses' song that's being sung? Like with Moses, God's people passed through a trial and saw God triumph over his enemies, then they sang on the seashore. They do the same thing here. Having passed through the worst trial of all, they sing. Now, there are a, a few different songs in Scripture attributed to Moses. Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 90. None of them have the exact lyrics as this song in Revelation. But they often do carry some very similar themes. God's justice, victory over evil, holiness, glory, and God's works of salvation for his people. Such as in Exodus 15:11, where it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? But perhaps we shouldn't expect it to be the exact same song anyway. Did you notice? It's not just the song of Moses they sing, it's the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb. Now, I don't think that means they're singing two different songs or even two merged songs. No, I think they're singing Moses' song in a new way, with, with new vigor, new meaning, because of what the Lamb has now done. Jesus has forever altered the song with his far greater exodus and salvation and victory over evil. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just 
and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Notice that the saints aren't singing anything about themselves. They don't sing about their remarkable victory, their perseverance, or their faithfulness. We made it, guys! No, they sing about the greatness, amazingness, justice, truth, glory, holiness, righteousness, and worthiness of God. There's a high view of God in heaven. Verse 3 repeats one idea in two different ways, with two phrases, two titles for God. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So everything that God does is great and amazing. All his ways are just and true. He is the Lord God, the Almighty, and he is the ultimate king of the nations. So why worship the Lord? The same answers as always, what he does and who he is. In the context of God completing his wrath, this further means that his wrath is part of his great amazing, just, and true ways. And that no one can stop the Lord Almighty. He will be king of all nations one day. So, how should we respond to this unstoppable, incomparable greatness? Join in the song. Right? Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations, that includes our nation, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Any and every chance we get, we should acknowledge his greatness and admire his amazing works and ways. Not all of God's righteous acts have yet been revealed. There's more to come. But this is the song of Moses and the Lamb, which reminds us that some of his greatest acts have been revealed to us. In his repeated saving of his people throughout history, culminating in the, the curse-crushing, death-defeating, sin-slaying death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lamb. The gospel truly is his greatest, most amazing, righteous, and just act of all. And so we can praise. Praise God. Like personalize this. Pray it. Proclaim these truths back to him. For he's worthy. But I want you to recognize something before we move on here. Verse 3 said, just and true are your ways. That's like a, a chorus or a refrain in Revelation. Just and true are your ways. It, it keeps coming up at key points. It's also a defense of God, what you might call a theodicy. Making the claim that God's judgment will be seen and proven to be legally just and morally true. God will be vindicated. And we finite 
temporal humans tend to object to God's justice, thinking that it can't be just. Like last week in chapter 14, where it brought up hell and, and blood flowing thick, we think it's too much. And yet here, where believers can see the far bigger picture from heaven's perspective, they declare, or should I say, we declare, that is just and true. Have you ever wanted to time travel and tell your past self anything? Right? Have you, like, now that you've seen more of life, you've experienced more, you've learned more, hopefully matured more, and you could go back and talk to your younger, stupider self, maybe give yourself a warning of some kind to save yourself a lot of pain or heartache in a life situation, maybe you could instill some wisdom into yourself to, to make life better for you along the way, maybe you'd even tell yourself what stocks to buy, if you follow Jesus, I believe this is essentially your future self who has seen it all telling you God's ways are totally just and true. Trust me, you ain't seen nothing yet. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Revealed. We do see such a small slice of the picture. We haven't seen everything revealed yet. Heaven sees much clearer than us. Can you trust them? Can you trust the more illuminated version of yourself from the future? When your future self comes back and tells you to buy stock in Jesus... Do it. But maybe the most important question of all is, isn't do you trust heaven, do you trust yourself? Will you trust God's word? These words should totally shape how we view God's wrath or justice. It's just and it's true. After the song concludes in verse 5, there's a bustle of activity in heaven. It says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Now the sanctuary of the tent of witness refers to the tabernacle, like the Israelites built in the desert. Of course, that tabernacle was, of course, only a shadow or copy of the true tabernacle in heaven. And no matter how literal or figurative this is, the sanctuary is where God dwells. Here, John sees it thrown wide open. Now that image evokes the, the curtain being torn at Jesus' death, right? Which signified both judgment and the opening of access to God. However, this time around, the tabernacle doesn't open for anyone to go in. No, it's opened up so God's wrath can go out as carried out by these radiantly glorious angels. Daryl Johnson explains, it was at the tabernacle that God's essential character and nature was revealed and experienced. 
It was there that holiness, the burning zeal for everything that is right, coupled with a perfect hatred of everything that is evil, was revealed and experienced by the people. The bulls are therefore the natural automatic reflex of holiness. The bulls are the logical response, the awful logical response of holiness to evil and impurity. What bulls is he talking about? See for yourself. Verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bulls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Apparently the angels mix the plagues they're carrying with God's wrath in the bulls. And then, verse 8, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So until his wrath is completely poured out, God is unapproachable here. Smoke belches out from his presence, as it says, from his glory and his power, which recalls the times clouds of smoke cover Mount Sinai or the tabernacle or when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and the temple filled with smoke. Don't miss the implication, though. God's glory and power are displayed in his holy wrath. And when we witness his glory and power, I guarantee you we'll fall on our faces in worship. Now, if you had to subtitle chapters 15 and 16... You might call chapter 15 what God deserves, our worship. In chapter 16, you could label what humanity deserves. This is where the bulls get dumped out. God's wrath is poured out. But there are at least three additional truths about God's wrath we learn here in chapter 16. First one is the great completion of God's wrath pours out justice. It pours out, the completion of God's wrath will pour out perfect justice. And we already touched on God's justice, but this section hammers the point home. Look at verse 1. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, that would be God, the voice of God. Remember, he's the only one in there right now. Says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So, like earlier judgments, these plagues again echo the ten plagues in Exodus. This first bull recalls the sixth plague of painful boils that hit the Egyptians. This plague in Revelation certainly sounds pretty gruesome and painful. In such a a global disaster, you can imagine the strain on health care and medicine, let alone people's sanity. One of the main differences between these bold judgments and earlier plagues in Revelation is in their severity. 
Things have definitely intensified as we've gone along. The seals, if you remember, destroyed a lot of one quarter of things, and then the trumpets, one third. But this time around, the bulls impact the whole of the earth. The judgments are complete. Look at the second bowl, for example. In verse 3, it says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Remember that the seas were the lifeblood of the Roman Empire in John's day. So they were, they were completely dependent on the seas for food and expansive trade routes. This disaster in John's hearers' ears would have, it would have destroyed commerce to the point of civilization collapse. Probably do the same today, to be honest. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now the fresh water goes too. And this would obviously kill many people as well. Both the, the last two bowls reflect the first plague in Egypt with water turning to blood. But here we get a, an interruption as the angel interjects a message of approval. In verse 5 it says, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. There's that chorus again. Repeated a couple times, just are you, true and just. The angel roots his comment in God's nature. In verse 5, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was in his holiness and his eternality. God knows what is just and unjust, guaranteed. Also, any sin against a capital H, holy God, is infinite in its nature. Wrath is warranted. But in case there was any doubt, the angel mentions the main crime being punished here. It says, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Parents can imagine the grief and fury they would feel if their children were murdered. Right? An overwhelming desire for justice would only be natural. We would yearn for an eye for an eye, a life for a life. Now, in our sinful natures, we'd likely bungle it up and just repay evil for evil. But it's impossible for God to mess up justice. He's holy. At the same time, he, is, he really is grieved and angered. Like his kids have been being killed for millennia. I mean, if, if God chose to blast the entire planet out of orbit, it'd be deserved. The word for shedding the blood of saints here is also means to pour. So they pour out blood, God pours out wrath. 
Here it's like the angel anticipates our concerns or objections to the severity of justice. So, he, so his words of worship assure us again, God is just and people do deserve this. Then heaven, likely the, the martyred saints under the altar, echoes the angel's call, and they heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. One of the most common objections to the gospel is in regards to our deservedness. Right? We're programmed to think that we are naturally good people who deserve good things. If there's a God, then he owes us. If we were to dare to suggest that anyone is a sinner, let alone everyone being a sinner, we're asking for it. It mentioned that we deserve God's wrath or hell and people will flinch in terror. And yet, if God is holy, God is holy, and he as our creator has a claim on our lives. He doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything. And so when we then shake our fists in his face and live for ourselves or for other gods or other pleasures, passions, when we flaunt his laws and use our God-given blessings to explore and invent evil, when we hurt or abuse others who are made in the image of God, when we rape them in our minds and curse them in our hearts, who's in the wrong when the gavel bangs and we hear guilty? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Daryl Johnson says this passage declares that judgment is justified. God's wrath is not capricious, not arbitrary. It is earned. It is chosen. Judgment always fits the crime. We can trust the holy God on this. Judgment is always consistent with the sin. We must all humbly conclude that God's wrath against us is justified. If you will not, you will never see your need for Jesus and find his mercy instead. The great completion of God's wrath pours out justice. Now, I think believers should hear this that justice is coming, so, so hold on until then. And if you've been hurt or abused, take heart. Justice will be served. On the other hand, unbelievers should hear that justice is coming, so please repent now. This is one of the, the key aims of judgment in the Bible. God is trying to, to wake people up, trying to show us the destructiveness of sin and the need to get right with him. In Revelation 16, people's hearts are so hard, it appears that it's too late to repent. But that doesn't mean the desire that people would repent disappears. 
You can see it come through here. Even here, at the culmination of God's wrath, I put it this way, that the great completion of God's wrath desires repentance. It aims for repentance. It's the goal of judgment. God's wrath desires repentance. Look at verse 8. It says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Earlier in Revelation, God's people were promised, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. In direct contrast to that, the wicked are judged with a literally scorching sun. On a, a really hot day, we might say, it's a scorcher outside. We don't mean the sun is actually setting people on fire. That happens here. Since fire is the symbol for judgment, this is an especially potent warning. And yet, people utterly reject the warning. Not only refusing to repent of their wicked ways, but their sins intensify with the sunshine. And they curse God. As they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, they did not repent and give him glory. That's what God wants. He wants them to repent, to be free of the cancer inside of them. He wants them to give him rightful glory, fulfilling what they were created to do. But instead, people do the exact opposite. By the way, I believe this is a small glimpse of what will happen in hell throughout eternity. We may imagine hell to be more like a purgatory where we will be punished for evil, but eventually the judgment will get through to us and will change, will be purified in some way. Therefore, we think God must be unjust to punish eternally. But if this is any hint, people facing God's strongest wrath will not ever want to repent. They won't change. They will only grow harder of heart, more stubborn in sin, and more blasphemous. The same thing happens with the fifth bull. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. It resembles the ninth plague in Egypt we don't, with, of darkness. And we don't know exactly how the darkness causes pain here. Maybe this was pain from prior plagues, exacerbated by not being able to tend to the wounds. Or maybe this is a precursor to the eternal darkness and torment of hell. Either way, people are beyond miserable here. They're in agony. Notice as well that that fifth bowl of wrath is a direct assault on the beast's kingdom. There's nothing 
that they, the, the rulers, the nations, the people, there's nothing they could do to get the lights turned back on or relieve the pain. Well, actually, there is. They could repent. But they won't. We sometimes say, repent now because one day it will be too late. God's patience will run out. Which is true. But it's not God's patience running out that's his problem here. It's people's hearts. Right? I would urge you to repent today because it might be too late tomorrow. And yes, Christ may return and, and you'll be found in rebellion to him, but also your heart may simply harden past the point of no return. So turn to Christ today. In the sixth bowl, the beast's empire is actually provoked to strike back. The empire strikes back. <laughs> it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Remember that Rome most feared potential attacks from the east. And that leads to this bizarre scene. Verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. What's with that? Well, first notice it's the false trinity, the dragon, beast, and false prophet. Second, the mouth in ancient times symbolized royal proclamation. So they're sending word out. And third, frogs make this reflect the second plague of frogs in Egypt. Anyway, these aren't actually frogs here, as John explains. It says they were three unclean spirits like frogs. Verse 16, or sorry, verse 14 continues, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 16 says, this is the amassing of armies for the most famous battle of all time. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So the world buys into the demonic deception that they should fight against God. And thus their fate is sealed. As Grant Osborne says, God continues to allow evil to come full circle. As God allows the false trinity to call the nations to the final battle. Evil participates in its own destruction. You may have noticed I skipped verse 15. Right in the middle of this, Jesus speaks up. He blurts out a, a seemingly random thought, though it's not random at all. Look at it. In parentheses in this version, it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Behold, look, pay attention, I'm coming back. And it will catch many people so off guard, it will be like I'm a thief. This verse provides us with one final vital application from this passage. 
that the great completion of God's wrath requires vigilance. The great completion of God's wrath requires vigilance until it ends. I don't have to tell you the prospect of a world war is a scary thing. So are the prospects of debilitating stores and bloody seas and bloody drinking water and searing sun and devastating darkness, of, of course. And yet we so often live our lives as if this kind of thing could never actually come. But no matter how literal or figurative this is, this completion of God's wrath will be devastating. And if you get caught unaware, unaware of or aloof to the great day of God the Almighty, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Jesus wants us awake. He wants us to stay alert, ready for his return, and so be blessed. Notice he doesn't say, cursed are you if you fall asleep, even if that may be true. He says, blessed are you. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Other versions say, blessed is the one who remains clothed here. Now, that is not a picture of never disrobing to shower or bathe or change clothes or sleep. This is a metaphor for staying spiritually ready at all times, for being vigilant. As the message paraphrases, keep watch. I come unannounced like a thief. You're blessed. If awake and dressed, you're ready for me. You're ready for me. So as the, dark, the forces of darkness gather for a final assault against God, God's people need reminded, and it's vital that we stay vigilant and keep alert to the many dangers to our souls right now. Be forewarned. The world will try to keep us from persevering till the end. As it says in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. But don't just hear the warning in these verses. Hear the promise of blessing. Blessed are the vigilant. So allow me to ask you today, how spiritually awake are you? How awake are you? How are you aware of those dangers to your soul? Are you keeping a close watch on yourself? How spiritually dressed are you? Are you living each day in light of that great day of the Lord? Are you ready if the Lord were to return this day or even this hour if not, what needs to change today? Where might you need to repent? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. God's wrath comes to a close here with one final bowl being poured out. Verse 17. 
So as the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And so his wrath has now been poured out on earth, water, fire, and air. The total natural world according to the ancients. And as in each account of the end of the world in Revelation, what scholars call the eschaton, the end is accompanied by a stunning storm and an enormous earthquake. Believe that this storm is basically God himself approaching in the storm. And the earthquake is essentially him unmaking the earth. Like it said, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Then Babylon was judged, which we'll look at more in depth next week, where it says God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Islands sink, mountains flatten, hail boulders fall. It says, and every island fled away, no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. <laughs> Danny Aiken describes the scene. He says, the earth, what little remains, will be pummeled and pulverized. Tragically, but now expected, men curse God for his righteous judgment. Beaten, they again blaspheme. Conquered, they curse. One last time, they shake their fist in God's face and curse his name. The response of humanity is stunning. So great is their hatred for God, they curse his name with their final dying breath. Even after everything. People refuse to repent and instead rail at the one who could save them. You notice God's loud declaration back in verse 17? A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. It's done. Do you know which gospel writer recorded Jesus calling out, it is finished as he died? It was John. Same John that wrote Revelation. So, Daryl Johnson concludes, it seems to me John would have somehow connected the two and intends for his readers to connect the two. What is finished? Everything that needs to be done in order for unholy sinners to enter into relationship with the holy God. What is finished in the cross is the judgment of the sin of those who came to Jesus. At the cross, God's burning zeal for the right, coupled with God's perfect hatred of evil, came together to save sinners. There is a way out of the wrath to come. 
It is to throw ourselves on the cross where wrath was mercifully expended by God on himself in the person of Jesus. The voice from the throne in the seventh bowl that cries out, it is done, is the same voice that cries from the cross, it is finished. Even in a heavy message from one of the darkest parts of Scripture, I want you to be encouraged. Yes, God's wrath will be devastating, but there is an end to God's wrath on earth. There is an end, and also there is an escape from God's wrath, both now and for eternity We believe that on the cross, Jesus took our place under the wrath of God and he drained the cup, or you could say the bowl of wrath, to the dregs so we never have to. For those shielded by Christ, God's wrath is already finished. It's finished, it's done. One day, for those who refuse the mercy of Christ, wrath will once again be spent. I don't mean to scare you with this, but I do mean to persuade you that Jesus Christ is your only hope. So repent where necessary. Run to the cross. And for those who have, stay vigilant and awake. And because of Christ, we can find ourselves standing in him alone on that great day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, stir our hearts for heaven. Tear our eyes from this earth. Lord, we pray that wherever, whichever hearts here or watching online, wherever people are, where we need to get right with you, we pr- I pray desperately that they would today. That they would run to you and find that escape from your wrath. We want to say today that you are just and true and that we trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.